he did could only Good morning, be. everyone. Oh, why? <laughs> I appreciated that. There's a McElwain here. When I was younger, my brother and I, a year older than I, were fairly rambunctious. And uh, one particular day, we're outside playing road hockey with wooden sticks. And at the end of it, we came inside and we noticed that he had a sliver in his hand. And the sliver, because of the repetition and the friction, a callus started to form over his hand. Now, my mom was away, and we were younger, and it was his right hand, and so he turned to his little brother and said, hey, I need you to help get this out of my hand. So we had some experience because my mom showed us what to do, and so we had a pin, and we lit it on fire, and we took the pin, and I started to kind of look to, to get the sliver out, but the callus had grown so, so thick because over repetition in time, in friction, there's a hardening that occurs. But I tried as hard as I could, and I was digging, but of course it was my older brother, and I realized there's some tension there in that relationship, but I was trying to kind of get in, he got frustrated because I could never get to the source of the sliver through the callus. And he turned and he just, he said, would you just do something? He pushed my hand, and the pin went right through the callus into the fleshy part of his hand. To which then he screamed and turned, matted his younger brother, clinched his fist, which he forgot there was a pin there, drove the pin through his hand and tried to punch me and off I ran. I feel at times at church when I think about the cross, the repetition of knowing this story Ashley prayed, soften our hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts. Why would he pray that prayer? Because it's very easy for the heart to become callous, to harden at the repetition of a story that we think we know. And so this morning I have the privilege of bringing us to the foot of the cross of a story to which you know, very, very familiar. It's the very essence of our faith. It's one of the reasons, primarily, next to Sunday we are here. And the story is so familiar, but I would bring us to the foot of the cross in the story in John chapter 19. But before I do that, I'd invite you to pray with me. And let's, let's ask God to allow us to see with our hearts, not just with our eyes, and to hear, not just with our ears, but to respond in the depth of our soul. Because for such a time as this, we need a word from God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just pray and I ask that to invite you, in spite of me, in my words, that you would strike those that are that are not from you, but those that are from you, I pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would have eyes to see, that we'd have a, our mind to understand and a heart that would be soft and that would obey. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of being here uh, with family. In Christ's name, amen. So before we start to the book of John, I want to talk a little bit about the accounts of the scriptures. 
There are four accounts written called the Gospels. And in the Gospels, each of those accounts give us a picture or an image of the person of Christ. But they're also written to a particular audience. And so when we read the book of Matthew, Matthew's primary theme is the king of the Jews because his audience is predominantly Jewish. And that title, king of the Jews, is a very important title and it will raise itself up in John chapter 19. But in the book of Mark, Mark was written predominantly to Romans. And there, the highlight and emphasis is that Jesus is the suffering servant. And then when we read in the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes predominantly to Greeks. And to the Greeks, he says, I want to introduce you to the Son of Man. But John, the Gospel of John to which we're going to look at today is a very interesting Gospel because the Gospel of John is written to all. And the emphasis of the Gospel of John is that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I want to sit there for a second. He was the Son of God. And when he starts in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, and most of us are familiar, because he's talking to a wide variety of audience, he's talking about the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And part of that was coming out of the Greek philosophy, and he was attempting to address the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was in the beginning. He was God. But as he moves through the Gospel of of John, he highlights seven signs. And he uses the phrase sign, not miracle, but sign. Why would he use a sign? And he only uses seven. And so as he's writing to the audience that's reading to understand who the Son of God is, he starts these seven signs. And the first sign is in chapter 2. What happens in chapter 2? We already heard about Mary. Mary, his mother, says, turn the water into wine. And he does. In chapter 4, all of a sudden, the second sign comes. And what is it? It's a healing of a nobleman's son. In chapter 6 is the third. And what happens in chapter 6? Well, it's the feeding of the 5,000. At the end of chapter 6, the next. He calms the storm. You see, the sign As you're watching the seven signs, he's building the case that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's supreme over all things. And after he calms the seas, what's the next sign? Chapter 9, where a blind man was blind all his life, and what happens? Jesus comes upon him and, and opens the eyes of the blind. And then he moves and asks that man, he goes to the synagogue, and in the midst of that sign of opening the eyes, it's the condemnation to the Jews and the leadership who reject him and throw him out. Then we get into chapter 11, is the last sign. Do you know the last sign in chapter 11? What does he do? He raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. The seven signs. And these seven signs, as John is writing this gospel, is pointing us to John chapter 19. But those signs are telling us, as the readers, 2,000 years ago and even to today, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And these signs are pointing in the direction to him as the Son of God. Well, so much so, what does he do in John chapter 20? He explains it to us. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd love you to turn 
not only to the 19, but you'll be able to flip to 20. But if you're like me, when I come here, I generally use my phone, so you can get to your phone. But if you want to understand the Gospel of John, why the writer John writes the Gospel, it's seen in, one, in two verses in John chapter 20. In John 20, he says this. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. (laughs) I've given you seven. So when you skip through the gospel, please look at all the seven. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And that by believing in his name, you may have life. That's why John wrote the gospel of John. The signs and the movement are pointing him and pointing us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now when we read this, and we are getting ourselves now to the cross in John chapter 19. Why is it interesting you're going to see some things in 19 that are incredibly surprising. What's surprising? See, when Jesus used to feed thousands, thousands would come when he was feeding them. When Jesus would teach, hundreds would come. Jesus grabbed 12 around him. And those 12 were his associates and his disciples, and they spent three years on the earth preaching and teaching. And one of those 12 was a traitor who would betray him. But of those 12, he had three who were his closest of friends. Do we know those three? Three? Peter, James, and John. And whenever he... There were certain interesting things and and, and challenging things to do. He would go off with the three. But now we get to John chapter 19. So think about this. Thousands. And now you move to John chapter 19, and we're going to see him on the cross. Where is everyone? In the middle of John chapter 19, we see how many people are standing at the foot of the cross. Do you know how many? Five. Four women, including his mother, and one man, John. Everyone else fled and ran and were afraid. But four women and one man. Now, if you talk to pastors, that's a pretty common thing. We call them Christian widows in the church. There's something intriguing that God seems to move and inspire it. And you have four women, and you have only one disciple at the foot of the cross. Yet this disciple records with great detail. So when we read this, and if you read the story, and if you don't understand the robust nature of it, you may move through it because he writes the detail because he was there. It's his testimony, it's his first hand account. 
And so it's really important for us to understand that first-hand account. So he takes us right to the foot of the cross. So what's the purpose? What's the purpose? To understand John chapter 19, you need to understand Genesis 22. Anyone know what Genesis 22 is? Genesis 22 is the time when Abraham took his one and only son because he was called by God to go sacrifice his one and only son on the altar at the top of Mount Moriah. I know some of you are going, I've never heard this. Or what is it? Early church fathers saw the parallel between Genesis chapter 22 and John chapter 19 or, the, or, or what was happening at the cross. Why? Did you know it's the first time in the scripture in Genesis chapter 22 that the word love is used? Did you know that? And it's accounted for the love of a father for a son. And in Genesis 22 it says, Abraham, take your one and only son whom you love, and go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice your son. Well, to understand John 19, you need to understand Genesis 22. Why? Because the scripture and and the prophecy that was occurring in Genesis chapter 22, when, when God said this to him, The Lord will provide himself a sacrifice in the mountain of the Lord, and it shall be seen. Now you need to know your geography. You see, when Abraham was grabbed some wood and was walking towards the top of Mount Moriah, in Genesis 22, 2,000 years later, when you start walking towards Moriah, where would you hit? The city of David. And as you would point north from the city of David, you would see the hill Moriah. It's now called Zion. And as you're sitting there in in the city of David, you would look up and point north, and you would move up, and there's another hill. And when you got to that hill, there's 35 acres there. What's on that 35-acre plot 2,000 years later? It was the temple. It was the temple where they sacrificed the lambs for the Passover, But when you got to the temple and you looked and you would point up, guess what happened? You could still go north. And it's exactly where Abraham was taking Isaac, whom he almost sacrificed 2,000 years earlier. Because the prophecy wasn't to Abraham. It was to us. And as you got to the temple and you looked north, you could see there was another cropping at the top of the hill. And if we walk there today, what would you see? Well, you, when you get to the top, there's a place the Hebrews call Golgotha. And so when God said to Abraham, go take your son and your one and only son whom you love to the top of the, of the mountain of the Lord and a sacrifice will be seen, he was talking about the sacrifice of Christ. His son, his one and only son. I get chills when I think about it. 
because we don't talk about it. We don't understand the richness of what John 19 was doing here. Why is that so important? Because as Christ was being crucified and fulfilling the prophecy, the fact that on the mountain of the Lord, the Lord will provide a sacrifice for himself. What he was saying is that God himself will sacrifice himself for his creation. At the same time in the temple, thousands of lambs would be sacrificed. It's an incredible picture. You see, there was a purpose. There was no oops with God. See, we read this story and we start reading and thinking, oh, no, this was the plan of God from the beginning. And throughout the Gospel of John and John 19, we see the evidence of building the story to truly understand the fullness of what God was doing in the life of Christ and why we're here. Second thing is he's described as the Lamb of God. Scripture says what? John the Baptist said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's the uniqueness about lambs as opposed to other animals? Why did he say, Look, he's a lamb led to the slaughter? He wasn't driven, he wasn't conjoled, he wasn't dragged, he wasn't pushed, he was led. See, lambs are led. They're not driven. So Jesus was led to the cross. There was purpose in a plan of God. Started 2,000 years earlier. And if we didn't understand Mount Moriah and the movement of the sacrifices, we now see the depth of what God was trying to do here, and we see the robustness of why we come here on a Friday to understand. So, when we look at this, all I want to do is walk you through 19. Because in 19, we will see the fullness of the, ex- of the extent of the purpose and the plan of God. So in John chapter 18, we already know. We had, he had Passover in 17, and as we move into 18, right? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, gets arrested, and then all of a sudden, his trial begins. And all through the book of 18, there's constant trials. He's pulled before Pilate. There's a point in, in it that the, uh, the Jewish leaders wouldn't go before Pilate because why? It was, in, it was close to the preparation of the Passover, so they couldn't go see Pilate because if they did, they would defile themselves. And I say this to you because when you read 19 in its fullness, you'll understand the language of the story. And so as he moves through 18, he's already been he's already been. Uh, he's already been acquitted in essence because constantly Pilate would come back and forth as the Jews were challenging him. He kept saying, he's not guilty. I don't see this man has any guilt. But the Jewish leaders, because of their anger and their rage, and because of the time of the Passover, they continued to go before Pilate, and the only way Pilate could decide is they had to identify a crime because Pilate was a judge. And so in John chapter 19, when we read this, or you may read this, maybe I I won't, I'll read it for you. 
There we go. Thank you. John chapter 19, it says this. Then then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. He had him scourged. And so you need to understand in 18 that he constantly, three times he goes before all the Jews who are calling for him to be crucified. He says, I find no guilt in this man. He pulls him in and he says, where are you from? He said, are you not the king of the Jews? He goes, I'm not the king. I'm a king, but I'm not a king of this world. And then Pilate was afraid. He went back to the Jews out in the audience who were asking him to be crucified and said, I still find no, no guilt in this man. He's committed no crime. But now we get into 18 and Pilate then takes Jesus and he is flogged. Why is that so important to the story? Because in Isaiah, it said what? By his stripes, you will know him. He'll be flogged and he'll be stripped and he'll be beaten. But we need to understand what does flogging mean? In the context there, the Romans had three variations of flogging. The third, the most gruesome. And the reason of the third, it was that you would stripe, you would stripe the prisoner in diagonals across his back. And usually this striping occurred, the third, the most extreme, would occur because there was a penalty of death. The crucifixion was coming, and they did so for two reasons. The lictors who were on either side of him would take the leather that was bound with metal and bound with sheep bone, and they would yell, confess, and they would turn and they would stripe the prisoner whose arms were stretched around a pole so his back was taut. And as the stripe would come across the the, the body, it would tear to the flesh, and they would yell, confess. In this third act of scourging, it was 40 lashes or 40 striping. But the Romans would give 39 and call one an act of mercy. But why did they do the scourging? See, Pilate said he's not guilty. (laughs) So why would they scourge? And why give him the extreme of the scourging? Because they did it for two reasons. Number one, to an exact confession. He saw no guilt. So the hope was that most prisoners who were being scourged or striped would confess and they would lighten up on the striping. But Jesus wasn't guilty. So he took all 39. He was hoping for a confession, but he couldn't confess because he wasn't guilty. And the torture that occurred was that it would, it would help move through the crucifixion because crucifixion took a long period of time and, and the greater the beating, the more of the bloodletting, the greater the opportunity that death would come early, and many were killed during the striping. And so when we read this, then the soldiers, after the striping, they twisted a crown of thorns. Why is that so interesting? Because the curse to Adam in Genesis was the curse of the ground. Remember that curse in Genesis? What was the curse? Curse to Adam on the ground was the fact that because of your sin, the curse of the earth would be what? Thorns and thistles. 
unspiritual Romans put together a crown of thorns and drove it into his skull. The one who was going to lift the curse of the ground had the crown of thorns driven into his head. And there, there they then put a purple robe, as it says. They put a purple robe on him. And as they put the purple robe, you think, well, that's fairly compassionate. Actually, it's not. That military robe, that purple robe was quite thick. And after this beating, as they placed the robe on him, as the blood would continue to coagulate, and it would dry. As he moved and walked through to get to the top of Mount Moriah, to the, the place of the skulls, they would then pull that robe off of him and would reopen all the wounds and bring the bloodletting. Not only did they do that, what did they say? He pulls them out in front of everyone and they say, hail the king of the Jews. But the four centurions that were looking after him, what did they do? They mocked him. They did a thing that they called happy hands. And they covered his eyes, and they stood around him in a square, and they would punch him in the face. And if you've ever been punched, I happen to have been punched on the odd occasion. To see it coming, you can move. To not see it coming, you take its full force. And they played this game, calling Hail the King of the Jews, and they would strike his face, strike his face, strike his face. And then he was brought back in to see Pilate, and Pilate looked at the grotesqueness of what was happening. And he said, Hail the King of the Jews, and they stopped. But Pilate answered, You take him. And you crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for the charge against him. The Jewish, Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be God. I want to stop there for a second. The, finally, we get to the truth. In the Gospel of John's account, constantly the Jewish leaders are what? Trying to indict Jesus. What are they trying to indict him? not paying taxes to Caesar, causing an upheaval. But now they show their hand. What hand are they showing? He's a blasphemer. He claims to be God. He claims to be the Son of God. What's intriguing about that? What's intriguing about that is Leviticus chapter 24. You see, in Leviticus chapter 24, there was already a law. The law was to the Jew, anyone who claimed to be a blasphemer needed to be stoned to death. But the Romans had taken away capital punishment from the Jews. And the Romans were the only ones, because they, they governed, were the only ones to inflict capital punishment. So the Jews could not inflict capital punishment to Jesus for blasphemy. And so when they say this to Pilate and say, here, he claims to be the king of the Jews, and he's a blasphemer, what does Pilate say? I have nothing to do with your law. But why does John write this? Because now we understand the reason why. And when you see John's building his case and you get to 19, 
Jesus was killed because he claimed to be the Son of God. And the seven signs all through pointed that he was the Son of God. And that Genesis, not only understanding the curse of the earth, but what was happening in Genesis 22 with Abraham and his son, we understand that the purpose of God and the plan of God was leading Jesus to this experience. He was not being led by man. He was being led by God. Let me ask you this question. Do you think you're here because of you today? I don't. Some of you are new here. I'm just a member of the church, like you. You're listening or seeing this on on video. You just didn't stumble across this. See, you're here because God purposed it to be so. As much as he purposed the Son, because he said, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you know what the sin of the world is? First, the Gospel of John tells us what the sin of the world is. It's disbelief. Jesus came to take away the disbelief of the world, which is the sin that separated uh, us from God. And so you're here for a purpose. Now, the second thing that we see here is the power. And let me read this part of the story. So, G, so Pilate says this. Thank you. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid when he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He says to him. He asked, he said, Jesus gave him no answer. He refused to speak. And then he appeals to authority. Don't you know who I am? He says to Jesus. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know the power I have over you? Jesus was silent all through this after the first proclamation where he asked him if you're the king and are you a king of of the Jews? He goes, no, I'm a king of this world, a world that you don't know. And he remained silent all the way through the torture and the beating. But now all of a sudden, Pilate begins to, hey, let me tell you the power and authority I have. He plays the power game. And Jesus speaks to clarify. And what does he say? Pilate, you have no power and authority over me. The only power you have is what's been given you by my Father. You think the Jews have power over me? You think that crowd has power over me? You've missed the point. Why does John put this here? He's trying to tell us, you think you have authority and power and control over your life and that you'll stand before me at some point? And when Pilate heard this, (laughs) he was afraid. Actually, in Matthew, there's a Greek word that he uses And it literally means to be shaken and astonished. Shaken in the sense of the truth of what that meant 
and astonished that this man who claimed to be the son of God and the king of the Jews and the king of this world would take such a beating, and he knew not guilty. Why? Because earlier on, what did his wife got caught up in a dream and said to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And Pilate knew he was stuck. And so he played the power game to try to conjole Jesus to succumb to it so that he would be released. And he knew that he didn't want to send a a not guilty man to death. But then he does something interesting. He turns back and he takes Jesus out after hearing this. When he looks at it, he, he, he stands Jesus in front of everyone and he says this. He stands in front of the Jews and he says, if you li-, stands in front of the Jews and he says, I'm trying to free this man. Shall I crucify your king? And then the religious leader said, We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. Why is that interesting? (laughs) You need to know a little history about Pilate. Pilate had three uprisings with the Jews already. Three times that that he did something and inflicted damage to the Jews, the Jews went to to Caesar and complained about who Pilate was. And the three that he complained about, two of them were solely directed by putting an image of Caesar into Jerusalem and then to the Antonio Fortress. And both of those times, it was, it, was, it was against the Levitical laws of bringing an image that wasn't of God. And so now, all of a sudden, the Jewish leaders who now see this are willing to say, hang on, we have only one king, and that king is Caesar. And the reason why he was afraid when he said, you are no friend of Caesar's if you let this man go is because they had already gone around his back to Caesar three times and he knew he was on thin ice. And then what happens? What happens is after after he releases Uh, 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 Jesus in front of the crowd and the crowd says we have no friend we we have no king but Caesar then you need to know a little bit of your history why in 30 some years later what does Caesar do to now the governor of Titus he says go into Jerusalem destroy the city of David destroy the temple and 1.5 million Jews were slaughtered that's their king And now we get to the walk. So Jesus gets crucified. And as we walk through this in this scene, he stands before them and they say, no, give us, give us Caesar. And so it says that Jesus was numbered amongst the transgressions. And so Jesus has to take that walk. He's led. He wasn't pulled. He wasn't dragged. He led himself to the top of Mount Moriah, to Mount Zion, to Golgotha. And when it was at Golgotha, it said here in the text, he was numbered with the transgressors. Why is that so important? He was put in the middle. The greatest of the criminals was always placed in the middle. He was numbered. Did you know when that prophecy was, was given? It was given way back in Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier. And the last thing I want us to understand, especially the crucifixion, 
You see, part of what was happening in the law of a blasphemer, if you were Jewish, then you would have to be stoned. And a, a month ago, I talked to you about that stoning, because Stephen ended up being stoned. When the prophecy that Jesus would be lifted off the ground and the whole explanation of the Lamb of God being striped and suffered and beaten and punished and his side, uh, a spear, that he would die without his legs being broken, all that description occurred before the cross was even invented. Do you know who invented the cross? It was the Persians. It wasn't the Romans. Romans perfected it. The, reasons, the reason that the Persians invented the cross is because they were naturalists and they wanted nothing to die on the earth. So they, they thought of this idea of the cross to lift up the prisoner or the guilty and that they would die and hang on the cross and they would have these crosses all down the road so people would come by and see the punishment and it would be a deterrent. And so it was so interesting because the Jews knew at the time of the Passover, they knew that they couldn't condemn Jesus by blasphemy, by stoning him into the earth. But 2,000 years earlier, hundreds of years earlier, it said that Jesus would be lifted up in the cross and in the cross he would die a painful death. And at the foot of the cross, there were five who witnessed this. The last thing. As he was dying, so we see his, the plan of God from the beginning. We see his power and authority. He was being led. And he willfully followed the Lord's instructions. And when he was on the cross, after taking the beating and as he was dying, he said an interesting phrase and he said, it is finished. That Greek word that's used means paid in full. We transliterate it, it is finished. But it actually means paid in full. What he was saying is, he first turned to his mother and said, John, take care of my mom. The human capacity, I've done the work and will of the father. He took a, a, a taste of, of vinegar and then he looked up to heaven and he said, it is finished. It's paid in full. Which brings us back to the fact that the purpose and the plan and the power of God was to declare that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And then accepting the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, your debt of sin was paid to the holy God and the righteous God whose wrath came upon sin. And the commitment he made in, John, in Genesis 22 when he said to Abraham, you're not going to sacrifice your son on the mountain of the Lord. I'm going to sacrifice my son for all to see. And I will be the sacrifice to atone the relationship between humanity and God. And so when Jesus said it is finished, it wasn't the fact that he was succumbing to the torture and the pain. He had completed the work and the plan of God to die for the sins of the world. And as the lambs were being slaughtered in the preparation in Jerusalem, just down from the mountain, the Lamb of God was slaughtered for all. And that's what we do here. One question to you. Did you hear? 
Did you hear with your heart? Or is or has your heart, based on the repetition of the story and the nature of what was happening, all of a sudden your heart has become callous to the things of God? Oh, it's just a story. Oh, it was an oops. Oh, it exacted. No, it's actually started from the beginning 2,000 years ago. God's plan was laid out, and he prophesied close to 300 prophecies around the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And then on Sunday, as they say, Sunday is coming. My hope is you see afresh the fullness of John chapter 19. The weight and the joy that God was in control and that our Savior was led like a lamb because he wanted to fulfill the work of God and the work of Christ because that's why he came. Let me pray. Father in heaven, as we sit and we think through this, I realize and recognize how great you are, that you have never been surprised, and that this very act and experience that we face now, the very opportunity that we have to celebrate and to worship you, to give you thanks, and to recognize the the penalty that was paid in full for us. There is nothing we can do, Lord, to earn that. We can just accept it with a heart that is open to you, Help us to open our hearts to you afresh and anew so that we can see the fullness of what you mean in the plan of God for our lives and the life of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.